clearly, as you heard in the sermon, in the announcements today, this is a time of celebration or uh, remembrance for this world. Almost every store you go into today, uh, the, the past few days, has been bedecked with pink, and everything is in the shape of a heart. And uh, you go into the food stores, and, well, everything is packaged in the shape of a heart. Valentine's Day, and all the world's a Twitter over it. A German philosopher and writer, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, said, All the knowledge I possess, everyone else can acquire, but my heart is all my own. A young lady who uh, frequents the world of blogosphere, I don't know who she is, but some of you may recognize her by the name of Coco J. Ginger, said, I want your most vital organ. I want it to be mine. So go to hand over. So the world is all a Twitter about the heart. Maybe worth our while to consider what God's word says about the heart. Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, the section of scripture that we recognize as being the Beatitudes, he said, blessed of a pure in heart, for they shall see God. It wasn't a question of what color pink. It wasn't a question of who do you think owns it or who has a right to it. It was a question of being pure in heart, for they shall see God. Far from being simply a feel-good platitude that would have be appropriate for this particular time of the year. This single verse contains much of the understanding of our human condition and the change that our Father wishes to see in each and every one of our lives. So let's examine some of Jesus' related teachings on this particular subject so that we in order can gain a deeper appreciation, deeper understanding of this profound instruction that Jesus gave, packed into, you might say, one single verse of the Beatitude. It may surprise you how much the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, says on the heart. The Gospel of Matthew deals extensively with the spiritual condition of the heart. Luke speaks a little more about the heart, but oftentimes Luke is referring to the physical condition of the heart, whereas Matthew almost entirely deals with the spiritual condition of the heart. In fact, Jesus Christ described himself as our role model in terms of the heart. And if you would turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30, Jesus Christ described himself in terms of the heart. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This world is burdened. Everywhere one goes, one sees the burdens of this world. I was in a van traveling from 
Caricchio to Nairobi, and a friend of ours, a friend of a church, and Dr. Winnale was sitting behind me, and Dr. Winnale said to this particular man, who is not a church member, but he is very well disposed towards us, he said, if you were president of Kenya, what changes would you bring about in this country? I don't think Dr. Winnale got another word in for the rest of the trip from Caricchio to uh, Nairobi, because there are so many changes that are necessary, because people are burdened by this world and by the God of this world and the problems that are associated with society. And Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is hope for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, so we are supposed to take his yoke, which is part of a learning process, learning about Jesus Christ and about his way of life. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Right? So there was something particular about the heart of Jesus Christ from which we have to learn, which we have to emulate. He said, the result of learning that, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The difficulties that this world binds upon people the way in which people are ensnared by this world, as we heard in the sermonette, can be changed. There is an alternative. So Jesus Christ said he was lowly in heart. The result of him being lowly in heart was that we can find rest for our souls. For his, his uh, yoke is easy and my burden light. So why is the heart so important then? Well, for a start, our brethren, a pure heart is essential for knowing and understanding the will of a heavenly Father. Without a pure heart, we will never, ever be able to come to understand what our Father's real will is. Jesus Christ in Isaiah, rather Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15 Quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, where Jesus said in verse 15, The hearts of his people have grown dull. They lack luster. They're heavy. They're burdened. The heart is burdened because people see no hope for their situation in this world. So Jesus said, the hearts of his people, the people that he looked at around him, the hearts of his people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. So what are they sensing? Their heart is dull. They can't be titillated by a Valentine's Day, you might say, as the world would like to have it. Their ears are deaf, are hard of hearing. Their eyesight is limited, if at all. Sounds just like me, hard of hearing, bad eyes. 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Ah, see, there's something the eternal would desire for people to be able to see and hear and as a consequence with that, understand with their hearts and turn and I should heal them. They would be healed. Their relationship would be changed with God. And so this aspect of a pure heart becomes very important. Jesus Christ has a desire to heal the hearts of people and the eyes and the hearing so that they can relate to their father in a way that this world has no comprehension of. They can see his purpose. They can understand his goals and his desires for their life in a profound way. So Jesus Christ said, that's my desire. That's what I look forward to, to the healing of the hearts, to the healing of the eyes, to the hearing, healing of the hearing of people so that they can appreciate my Father's purposes, what it is all about. On the other hand, Jesus Christ recorded very clearly for us in Matthew's Gospel the impure heart, the state of the impure heart. Matthew chapter 5, a few verses after he had talked about blessed of a pure in heart, he talked about people committing adultery in his heart. Where in verse 28 he said, I say to you that whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is Valentine's Day. There is a movie being released this weekend that probably has a spirit of adultery very much at the heart of what it's all about. This world is an adulterous world. It's anything but pure in heart. And of course, the heart also describes the situation of humanity that's cut off from its creator. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9, where Jesus Christ said, These people draw near to me with their mouth. Oh, we can say pompous words. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The natural condition of humanity is the heart is far removed from God, totally removed from God. A little later on that same chapter, we drop down to verses 18 through 19, we find that Jesus Christ describes where sin comes from in terms of the human being. Where he said in verse 18, he said, those things that proceed out of a mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. So what we say, the lies we tell, the profanities we utter come out of our heart or come out of 
humanity's hearts. Out of a heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, you name it. If something can be uttered against the great name of God, it comes out of an impure heart of a human being. A heart that needs to be purified and changed and healed. Jesus Christ also told us that our heart reveals our orientation in life. We could go to Matthew chapter 6 where he told us that we're not to lay in verse 19 through 21. Verses 19, he said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's your orientation? Is your heart focused upon the things of this earth? Or is it focused upon the things of our Heavenly Father? You might say these become litmus tests that we can apply to ourselves to see how pure or how impure our hearts might be. In discussing the heart in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus brings a matter to a closure by stating the standard of life, the orientation by which he lived, by restating the two great commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Jesus repeats those for us in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 through 39. Where Jesus told this young man who came to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Recorded by Moses, given by Jesus Christ as the word to Moses, recorded one and a half centuries beforehand, one and a half millennia beforehand, excuse me, when Moses was recounting the law to the children of Israel prior to their inheriting the promised land. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is where our heart is to be oriented, towards our Father. You might say the starting point for having a pure heart. He said the second is like unto, it, like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the two great commandments have to do with the heart as well. So Jesus sets out clearly the natural state of humanity, which is cut off from our Heavenly Father, and the necessary change that has to take place for a person to see our Father, or to see God, literally 
to be accorded a place in his kingdom. Here's a quote for you. It's from a book I think the young ladies may be interested in called The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Zubery. He said, now here is my secret, a very simple secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. An interesting concept. Because you see, Jesus Christ was using the heart in a way in which we wouldn't necessarily use the heart today. To the Semitic mind, to the Hebrews, to the Jews of the time of Jesus Christ and the writing of the New Testament, the heart was not just an organ of the body, but what was seen as the seat of the vital force of a human being, specifically of feeling, emotion, of inclination, disposition, determination, courage, will, attention, intention, etc. Now, we use some of those from time to time and some of the expressions we use. But to the people who heard Jesus speak, the heart was considered in a way we attribute to the mind today. Metaphorically, it referred to the entire person. It's what the heart was about. In other words, the heart was the center of the human problem. That's where the problem lay. And on the other hand, the change in heart was essential to a proper relationship with God. Now, we, of course, understand some of that. We talk about it because we read about the heart so frequently within God's word. We talk about the need for a heart transplant. We need to change the heart. But to a large extent, we speak about those things because we read about these things within God's word and we sort of absorb some of these things out of God's word in a particular way. We read, for instance, what David said in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba, where in verse 10, he said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Something needed cleaning. David realized the sin had occurred because his heart wasn't pure. He'd been able to be led astray because something was wrong with his heart. And he wanted it to be cleansed. He wanted it to become pure again. He said, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And so David sought to have his heart cleansed. The heart being representative of the whole. So David understood that. And we can appreciate that from what David has said. So Matthew has provided us with the majority of occasions on which the heart is dealt with from a spiritual perspective in the New Testament. 
spiritual perspective, talking about the real state of the heart. We'll look at some of the other references subsequently. But before we do, let's stop and take a pause for a moment and consider someone in the early church reading Matthew's Gospel. The first, obviously at some point along the line, the Gospels got bound into codices. Matthew was placed first. The structure of the Scriptures at that time was very different for them from the Bibles that we have opened on our laps in front of us today. Matthew would have followed Chronicles, if you could afford to have the Hebrew Scriptures. You would have realized that Matthew came after the book of Chronicles, not after the book of Malachi. The book of Psalms followed the book of Malachi. For a person reading the Bible in that particular order, they would find a profound continuity of message between that of a chronicler and Matthew. The aspect of having a pure heart. You see, the book of Chronicles was written after the return from captivity. Looking backwards over the history of Judah, looking back to the time of David principally, over that period of time, and looking backwards over that history and forwards in a prophetic sense to the coming of the Messiah, the son of David and the high priest, ruling in the kingdom of God from Jerusalem. Written with great anticipation. It was part of what we might call the, resurrect, the restoration section of Scripture, together with the books of Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, the restoration of the kingdom of God. It's rather interesting if you take a concordance and look up the word heart and see how frequently it appears in the book of Chronicles. We overlook it. You'll find that uh, there are some... 40 occurrences of the use of the term heart in some 36 verses of the two books of Chronicles. And normally speaking, talking about the state of the heart, the spiritual state of the heart. In a previous message, I talked to you about, I read to you the uh, comment from Second uh, Chronicles chapter 34, where it talked about Josiah, whose heart was tender towards the eternal. And the concept of tender coming from the idea of something having been, you might say, basted or soaked in olive oil. And why would we put something in olive oil? Well, to help tenderize it. Why do you put oil or an ointment on skin? Because it may be hard and crusty and it needs to be softened. And so the eternal describes the heart of Josiah, one of the last of the righteous kings of Judah, as having been tender towards him. I love the statement in Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9, where it says, where the prophet said to Asa, the king of Judah, the eyes of the eternal go to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose heart is right towards him, seeking those to whom he may show himself strong. Why? 
because their heart is right towards him. So the book of Chronicles talks frequently about this aspect of the heart. The demand of a pure heart as a precondition for a relationship with our Father was not established for the time for the first time in the teachings of Jesus Christ, nor, in fact, after the captivity. Clearly, David understood it. A millennium before Jesus Christ's earthly sojourn, the psalmist understood it. 500 years before that, Moses understood it. The need for things to be written in our heart. And so one can look at what the psalmist had to say in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 24, verse 4. How the eternal is going to look to those who, he said in verse 4, has a clean hands and a pure heart. Not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He sought to live his life rightly before our Heavenly Father. Psalm 73, verse 1, we find the psalmist once again saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Ah, God is good to those. There is a relationship there. But he said, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. We come back to the book of Chronicles again. The chronicler identified the problem of Judah as a lack of a pure heart. The kings of Judah did not follow after the ways of David. They went after the gods of the, the nations around them, and they led people astray. His consideration. And when we talk about the chronically, we must probably talking about Ezra being the one who wrote that particular history of Judah. His consideration of the history of Judah is best summed up in the words of a almost contemporary prophet, but someone who lived at the time of the captivity, Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah also talks about the problem that people had with their heart. And I really love the way in which he describes it in Jeremiah chapter 17. Now, of course, we read Jeremiah chapter 17 because we know verse 9, right? The spiritual cardiograph, as one called it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But roll, scroll back a few verses to verse 1 of the chapter and have an appreciation of a heart. Because in verse 1, Jeremiah said, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. Why do you need a diamond to engrave something? Because it's hard. It's not soft butter. You can't run your nail through it and scratch your name or put your signature on it or anything of that nature. You use the point of a diamond because something is almost as hard as a diamond. And up until recently, a diamond was the hardest substance known to us. 
And so it was the means by which things could be engraved which are very hard themselves. And so he said, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with a point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their hearts. The very antithesis of a pure heart. Nothing can be written on it. How do we go about, how does the eternal go about engraving his law, writing his law upon the tables of our heart when they are that way? And he goes on and talks about the sin of the people. Why they came to having such a hard heart. They remembered their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. They celebrated Valentine's Day, so to speak. That's why people's heart is hard today. Because they're in idolatry. So he said, on the mountain and the field, I'll give substance and all might of thy treasures to the spoil. And your high places for sin throughout your borders. And so on. He said in verse 5, Thus saith the Eternal, Cursed be the man that trusteth a man, that makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Eternal. Cursed. person who trusts in themselves does not have a heart that is acceptable to the Eternal. We live in a world which is given to such ideas. Great discussion of the present time about secularism going on in the world. We have a president who is highly secular, doesn't like to express things in terms of religion unless he can put it down because he's above that. He, like the rest of our society, trusts in man or humanity, in the mind of man, the arm of man. And, Jeremiah says, his heart departs from the eternal. Quite easy to understand. You'll be like the heath in the desert, will not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places of a wilderness in a salt land not inhabited. On the other hand, he said, blessed is the man that trusts in the eternal. Blessed is the one who puts their trust in him. He'll be like a tree planted by the waters. Psalm 1, remember? Blessed and happy is the man. Why is he blessed? Because he's like a tree planted by the waters. Never gets dry. Shall not see when heat comes, but her leaf shall be green. And shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from the yielding. In 1990, my wife and I were able to take some students on an archaeological project in Syria, in northeastern Syria. We're very close by what was then the, the Iraqi border and the Turkish border. And one Sabbath, the uh, professor in charge of it wondered what to do with us on the Sabbath because it wasn't good to have us sort of sitting around doing nothing on the Sabbath. So he rented a uh, little bus and he sent us off down to uh, the, uh, uh, a river about 20 kilometers away, 30 kilometers away, 
where Agatha Christie and her husband had done some archaeology in the 1930s. It was one of the cities to which the children of Israel had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And of course, we're there in the heat of the day. Really hot. 120 in the shade. And you don't stand outside. But the, uh, the, the professor had told us to go to a little restaurant there. And it was the most remarkable restaurant I'd ever been to in my life. And I'm sure my wife's life as well. Because the restaurant was in a spring. And the spring was surrounded by trees growing brilliantly in this heat. And all the tables were set in the water. And so you went into the restaurant, you had to take your shoes off. And the fish came and nibbled your toes while you're having lunch. <laughs> but here we were in the middle of a desert. And the trees were beautiful and green. And you're in this brilliant environment. Your feet were chilled because of the water coming out of the ground, because the spring water was so cold and magnificent. You didn't want to leave. What a place. But what a, what a portrayal of what Jeremiah is providing here, of the, the, the righteous and the way in which those whose heart is right towards the eternal will be. And so in verse 9 is a verse we all know from chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's a problem of humanity. Humanity is not in that beautiful spring restaurant. It's sitting out there in a dusty, dry place in the wilderness. Parched, drying, dissipating. Verse 10, it said, I, the eternal, sets the heart. He said, I try the reins, or I try the, literally, the kidneys, part of the innermost being. He searches, he tries, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his doing. The warning is given to us. The heart is deceitful. It's not naturally pure. What Jesus Christ said in, in Matthew chapter 15, so forth, very true, very valid. It needs to be tried as precious metal is tried. We find this concept of a refining process is a great metaphor that's used of the heart. Refining of it, purifying of it. So we exist in the state of an impure heart, a deceitful heart, a heart that is removed from God. The heart has to become pure. We can appreciate the application of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a payment for sins to provide that purity. But what does it mean by a heart becoming pure? All right, so we've talked about the heart. Let's have a look at the purity of the heart. We go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. The word that is translated as pure is the Greek term catharsis, from which we get our term catharsis. 
It relates to purging. The Greek term had a much wider application than our English term, and it relates to two separate aspects of cleanness or purity that we need to consider. The first aspect related to the facet of purity that we seldom think of today because we live in the Western world in the 21st century. It's not part of our thinking. It's only part of our thinking if we really stop and consider the application of God's word to us very closely. Because the first aspect of catharsis is that of ritual purity. The condition that allowed a person to appear before the eternal in the tabernacle or temple. A person who was ritually unclean or impure was not allowed into the sacred precincts to worship. No matter how much they desired, they were had to stay out. They've been associated with blood or they've been associated with a dead body. They had to stay out. They had to become purified. John chapter 11 talks about people going up to the Passover to be purified before the Passover. They went up days beforehand so that they could take the mikvahs, they could take the waters, so to speak, to purify themselves from the ritual impurities that they may have accumulated since they were last at the temple. In the temple itself, outside the court of women, there was a barrier, the sorek, which prevented a Gentile or an unclean person coming any closer to the temple, coming into the court of women, or to come into the court of the priests to be able to make a sacrifice. So a person who was ritually unclean or impure was not allowed into a close proximity of a temple to uh, worship, no matter how much they might have desired that. It's rather interesting if you read through the gospel accounts, that the gospel accounts are replete with example examples of people whose physical state denied them access to the temple and denied them access to the place where God had placed his name. They weren't able to go in, even to the court of a woman, to be able to offer a sacrifice because they were ritually unclean. Whether they were maimed or they were leprous or whatever case was. And so often, so many of the many of the healings that Jesus Christ undertook throughout the gospel accounts where great detail is given of this, the problem of a person and the way in which Jesus healed them instantaneously. It relates to the person being in a state of impurity. So they could not go into the temple to worship before the eternal. Now, of course, there are lots of other examples where Jesus Christ said he healed all of their sicknesses. So it wasn't just impurity that Jesus Christ was taking care of. He handled all sorts of diseases and sicknesses that existed. 
So Jesus Christ so often removed that level of impurity so that that person could appear before God. Case of the ten lepers. And Jesus Christ told them to go and show themselves to a priest and make that offering that was necessary. Because now they could, after having made that offering, they could appear before the eternal. They could enter into the temple into close proximity and have a relationship with them. Notice in Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, and verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul records for us that we have a great high priest, the one who supervised, who oversaw what happened in the temple, the one who officiated on the Day of Atonement and supervised what was happening within the temple. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He said, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might find, obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So we have this great high priest who can declare us clean, ritually clean. We don't need to be concerned about whether we have to offer a dove or a turtle dove or whatever the case may be. The aspect of ritual purity has been taken care of, you might say. Of course, we don't have a temple to go into at this point in time. What are the other facet of purity that's involved in this term that's used in Mark chapter 5, verse 8? What's the other facet? Well, at the end of the chapter, that contains the Beatitudes, at the end of chapter 5, Matthew records the instruction of Jesus that we are to become perfect just as our Father in heaven is perfect. Perfection is a goal. Matthew 5, verse 48. This concept of perfection speaks to the moral state and of spiritual maturity. It doesn't relate to the aspect of ritual purity, although that could be tied into it in some cases, but can only come about because of that purity. And you might like to make a note of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 15, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, in terms of this perfection. The Hebrew equivalent for the Greek term that is used in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 is the word tom. We transliterate that as T-O-M. In the scriptures, this term is used, is linked with the word for heart and is oftentimes expressed as the integrity of heart or of a perfect heart. So we find 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 4, Solomon, praying to the eternal, 
talks about the integrity of heart that he had towards the Father. Psalm 78 verse 72 talks about perfect heart. Psalm 101 verse 2, another reference you can note in terms of the way in which this word's used and translated of the perfect heart. The purity that is being talked about here is not a state we arrive at immediately simply by washing or bathing. It's not the type of purity that comes about by being in Jerusalem seven days before the feast to go through the mikveh seven times so that you can be clean, ritually clean, to keep the feast. This is a form of perfection that refers to a way of life we live, we grow by, a growth process, we might say, as we learn to live according to God's way. Psalm 102 refers to the perfect way, the way in which we have been called, or the way to perfection, the way of life in which we have been called to live. It is a way of life in which the impurities of this world are removed from our thinking and behavior. Scriptures portray both the Father and Jesus Christ as being pure in this area. One reads Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. You might say a very visual representation of the Ancient of Days, the Father. Or of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13 through 15 the glorified Jesus Christ. And what the, the only conclusion you can come to, the only image you can draw from those portrayals is of someone who has no impurity whatsoever in them. They're absolutely pure, for which we are very grateful. Their environment is also one of this type of purity. You can read Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 10. And it talks about the throne of God and how it was like gold but was so clear, so clean, so reflective, it was like glass. And, of course, you can read Revelation chapter 21 about the new Jerusalem and the beauty that is associated with that building. It needs no sun needs no sun because the Father and the Son are there providing light and it is radiated throughout the rest of their universe by the streets of gold that are like glass. Absolute purity. Beautifully pure. How do we arrive at that state of purity? Well, let me tell you another story. Because in 1974, we were pastoring the church in Rhodesia, which, to those of you who don't know, is Zimbabwe today. 1974, well, late 1973, I believe it was, President Nixon demonetized gold. And gold went from $35 an ounce to $70 an ounce. And a lot of the old mine sands from the gold mines in Rhodesia at that time 
became profitable to be reworked to extract gold which was locked in various chemical compounds. We had a church member who had uh, a few hundred, uh, a few thousand tons of uh, gold mine tailings, and he started processing them. And he came along to the first day of unleavened bread, and he had something in his hand. It was a little, you might say, a little cone, and probably about two inches, two and a half inches tall, a little over an inch and a half at the top. And he held it in his hand, and I think everyone knew what it was, but it didn't look like gold at all. It was dirty. It was gray. Because, you see, they'd had to use zinc filings as a means to detach the gold from the arsenic in which it was connected, uh, bound, and they had to run it through a particular process to get out. And so the gold had a lot of zinc resident in it. And he had come to town for the holy day, of course, the Passover, but he was taking it to the bank for a safe purposes. And, of course, what was going to happen? Somewhere along the line, that little piece of gold was going to be dropped into a very hot crucible. And all of the gunk that made it anything but like glass was going to rise to the surface and be skimmed off until it got to the level of purity that the, uh, the particular goldsmith uh, wanted it to have, 22 carat, whatever it may have been. But certainly nothing like the New Jerusalem. Nothing like God's throne. Nothing whatsoever. It's a place of absolute purity. Absolute purity. And so here we are. We have uh, the, the, the God family living in a state of purity. They are pure ritually. They are pure in terms of their moral character. They live in a state of purity. We like to be concerned with their outside, out, outward appearance. We dress, even informally, to convey a message. We're always conveying messages. A message of how we would like others to think of us, relate to us, rather than a reflection of the inner being or who we really are. The God family, on the other hand, the God family appearance, on the other hand, is a true reflection of their innermost being, of their purity. The writers of the scriptures were inspired to address the manner by which the Father seeks to bring the same condition about in our lives. They write about a process of trying that we as followers of Jesus Christ are to undergo. The Apostle Peter, for one, describes this process at length in his first epistle. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 22. He talks about our calling. Our calling is to a pure inheritance, one that lacks defilement or any form of impurity or uncleanness. He writes in that chapter of the trials of life as a process of purification, a fiery trial that tests the genuineness of our faith. It's incomparable even with gold which decays. 
no matter how much we refine gold, we can't get it to that point described the throne of God in Ezekiel chapter 24. Or John describes the New Jerusalem, the streets of New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. He writes of the trials of being part of a process of purification with the ultimate aim of our salvation and eternal relationship with our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Is that pure? We have to become pure too. We have to go through a process whereby we can become pure. The analogy of refining is not amiss, as the purpose of refining is, of course, to remove impurities that exist in precious metals. Likewise, we experience trials so that we can become pure throughout our entire being to our very core, to the very centermost of our being. We have to look at trials in that way. Peter also uses the term holy, which is also related to the concept of purity. He talks of us purifying ourselves with the aid of God's Holy Spirit so that the impurities of our previous life are removed. And some of them, as you heard in the sermonette, are very difficult to remove. They become very tenuous, very, very uh, difficult to remove. Very difficult to remove. Those of us who have had to deal with some of those problems helping others try to overcome these things, know how difficult those things can be for people to master and get out of their minds and overcome. The impurities of his previous life are removed and we can be considered holy. Notice the way in which he concludes it here in verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 he said, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Basically, Peter is addressing both of the steps of purity that we've talked about this afternoon. We've been purified. You might say step one. We've been purified through the waters of baptism. We've laid out our, you might say, our course of life saying we want to live this particular way of life. We want to repent. We want to be changed. We want to go through the waters of baptism so that we can bury the old self and be resurrected to a newness of life in Christ Jesus. We take that first step. In obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, he said, love one another fervently with a pure heart, a heart which has been cleansed of all the trappings of the flesh of this world, all of the things that go through people's mind in relation to Valentine's Day, don't have a part of our thinking because they're not of God. They're very much part of this world and the ways of this world. 
and the ways in which people want to use their lusts one on another to fulfill and gratify their own lusts. The Eternal wants us to have a pure heart, to see one another as he would see us and desire to see us, to see one another as God really is. In other words, a pure heart is something that needs to be part of us this side of a resurrection. It's something that we need to be concerned about today. A process of trying involves the heart. Paul speaks to the Hebrews about how the word of God is able to separate the good and the evil that resides within our heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. He talks about the word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword, being able to separate between the issues of the heart. Get in there and work out, that's impure. Let's work on getting that out. Cleansing it. This reiterates the instruction provided by the psalmist to the youth. Psalm 119 and verse 9, he said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? How shall he purify his life? He said, by taking heed thereto according to my word. Looking at your life and looking at God's word and say, well, how does my life compare with the word of God? Where does it fall short? Ah, that needs to be changed. That needs to be purified. And so Paul, talking to the church in Hebrews chapter 4, about the word of God being like a sharp two-edged sword, is, you might say, developing that analogy that the psalmist gave to the youth. Psalm 119, verse 9. John wrote to the church, or the churches of Asia Minor, about the power of Jesus Christ to search the hearts and minds in each of us and his ability to reward us accordingly. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. Ah, so we're going to be rewarded depending on what we've done in terms of purifying our heart. In terms of the way in which we've worked at it. In terms of bringing about the state of holiness. So a pure heart is not a platitudinous or pious statement by Jesus Christ. It's a statement that goes to the very core of our calling and our purpose. Why we're here. Why humanity was created. And the goal and purpose of our Father, our Father has for us. Having been called and brought into a relationship with our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to be involved in the purification process that encompasses our whole being. John summed this up very well in his first epistle, John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 3 rather, in verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1. He said, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself 
even as he is pure. How do we conduct ourselves? How do we go about purifying ourselves? The end result of being pure is that we can see our Heavenly Father. Do we start to see facets of our Heavenly Father and one another as we go about our lives, as we go about this purification process? Do we get to see glimpses of our Heavenly Father? Jesus Christ was a reflection of his Father. As he told Thomas, Philip, the disciples who were gathered around that Passover table with him. John chapter 14. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His heart was pure. His heart was a reflection of his Father's heart. It represented the character, the purity, the greatness of his father's heart as well. What about my heart? I just wish when you looked at me, you saw a little bit more of my father, the heavenly father. And that should be a goal for each and every one of us that we seek to reveal and show to one another a little bit more of our Heavenly Father as we go through this purification process. Become something that is important to us, something that is a driving force for us, so that we can stand before our Father one of these days, and he can say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of my Lord. Not only that, we can also then have a part in helping others come to having a pure heart, to being able to accomplish the purpose that our Heavenly Father has created for all humanity. So there is a now sentence, a now element to the promise of seeing God as well. We see if we are pure in heart, if we seek to be pure in heart, we're going to be able to reflect to others elements of our Father as well, and they will be able to see that. This world desperately needs it. Jesus Christ said, if we loved one another as he had loved us, the people would know that we are his disciples. John 13, verses 33 and 34. Why? Because we reflect that purity of our Heavenly Father. It has become part of our being, part of our very core to which we have been called. So, as Jesus Christ said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What an offer, what a calling, what a challenge for us.